Hey, this is Doc Washburn. We often hear from longtime listeners who wonder why we so rarely put out audio podcasts anymore. People ask, what happened to me? Well, here's the answer. When we made the decision to transfer to doing just video interviews, a friend of ours who's been in the entertainment industry for many years told us unless we got some interns to help us produce the video interviews, it was going to be much more time-consuming than just doing audio podcasts. We had no idea how right he was. We were looking for someone to help us produce our video interviews, and we hope to be able to generate audio episodes more often soon. In the meantime, here's the audio from our latest video interview, which is now available on YouTube. Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show. Our guest today is journalist Steve Baker. He was at the U.S. Capitol for the January 6, 2021 event. He documented a lot of it on video. Since then, he's been very active in investigating many aspects related to January 6. He has broken a number of original stories, developed Capitol Police whistleblowers, met with members of Congress, and engaged with con- congressional staffers and investigators. All of that has been well-documented online at his blog, the pragmatic constitutionalist.locals.com. Steve has been interviewed by Tucker Carlson on Fox and is now beginning work for Glenn Beck's outfit, The Blaze. He's currently being threatened with, pro- with prosecution by the federal government, apparently just for being a working journalist at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. It's an honor to present a gentleman who has risked so much just to try to tell the truth about what happened that day at the U.S. Capitol. Steve Baker, welcome to the Doc Washburn Show. How are you, sir? Hey, man, I'm good. Thanks, Doc, for having me. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Good deal. Well, it's good to have you. You know, over 100 years ago, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis said sunlight is the best of disinfectants. So let's get right to it. What do Americans need to know that most don't already know about the events of January 6, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol? Well, that's a question that you and I could spend an entire day on. I hope that you're, uh, <laughs> I hope that you're, you have enough, uh, memory in your hard drive to go there if we, if we went all the way there. But the, the, the simple answer is, is that nothing is really as it appears. Now, I've been investigating this since the day of, and my opinions and my thoughts, my analysis have changed many times on certain topics because I, I, I kind of have a new axiom since January 6th is that I will never again believe anything that I do not see with my own eyes, but then check the videotape. Because when you are in such a highly kinetic situation like it was that day, you can only your, your brain can only take in so much, just a tiny percentage of what's going on around you. And then. Afterwards, I spent five days doing uh, frame by frame analysis of my own video. And then over the course of the last, you know, many months and two and a half years now, I've seen so much more. So many other videos from so many different angles. It captured so much more information, provided more evidence, and it has affected my my own analysis. So I, I will tell you this, that from particularly my investigations with the Capitol Police, which have been very extensive, I've talked to quite a few of those um uh, gentlemen who were, in fact, deployed that day on the front lines of the battle inside the Capitol and elsewhere. And they have all told me universally that they believe that they were set up that day. And that setup has to do with not just 
not just typical government failures and incompetency, failures to communicate to the frontline officers, um, intelligence failures, but there there is in fact some cover up involved in that, and and we're we're getting to the bottom of that. So you have written extensively a three part series at your blog, the Pragmatic Constitutionalist com, that the U.S. Capitol Police were given no warning from their superiors to expect hundreds of thousands of protesters to descend on the Capitol grounds January 6th. You present a lot of evidence for your claim. But those of us who have seen video of police firing flashbang grenades and tear gas canisters were surprised to hear the idea that the police were taken by surprise. And those of us who have seen video of police mercilessly and repeatedly pummeling defenseless women in the face in or around the opening to the lower West portico would have never considered the possibility. These officers were caught off guard before we read what you wrote. Is there a way to explain these seemingly confusing or even contradictory facets to the caught off guard scenario? Yeah, it, it, it again would take a, an extremely long answer to that, but I'll, I'll try to simplify it as, as, uh, as best I can. Go right ahead. The, the, the first thing to understand is, is that in my interviews with various Capitol Police officers, as well as testimony given in various trials by Capitol Police officers, is that they had no idea what was coming their way that day. In fact, uh, there was one particular officer who was really pummeled on the east door, the famous Columbus door, before that door was breached. His name is Officer Ryan Salky. And in the first Oath Keepers trial, he was asked under cross-examination if he was aware that anything was happening at the Capitol that day. His answer was, and I quote, all I knew is something was happening over at the White House. That was it. Now, having said that, these these officers, they have what they call their roll call briefings every same single morning. And during those briefings, they're supposed to be shared with by their commanders what's what to expect that day. And one of the things that was never passed down to the frontline officers, and this is absolutely incredible, Doc, is that there were six or seven issued permits for protests on the Capitol lawn. I'm talking about stages with VIP speakers, including Congress members. Congress members who are the charge, they are the protectees of the United States Capitol Police, and none of them were shared in the morning roll call briefings that there were events to take place on the Capitol grounds, including those Congress members who would be speaking on those stages. And as a result of that, we've learned that this was probably a deliberate withholding of information because we saw in the trials, we have seen the actual permits signed by oath, um, sorry, by Capitol Police membership, our leadership rather, that these events were previously permitted, legally issued, and stages were built. There were, there were stages built on the lawn that day with Sound systems, PAs for the, the speakers that were scheduled to um, hold their their rallies there on the Capitol lawn, uh, lawn itself. Many of these permits were issued long before even Trump announced on December 19th the uh, rally that he would be doing at the Ellipse. So we know that this information was this is not a breakdown of, of, of intelligence. When you as a department are yourself issuing permits and then you fail to notify your frontline officers that day of what's going on. This is, this is bigger than incompetence. And further, I'll take it, I'll take it a step further. 
these officers who arrived that morning were under uh, what they called at the time, they were still under COVID protocols. So there were hundreds and hundreds of officers for whatever reason were on administrative leave that day, rather than being what they call all boots on the ground, which is the typical posture of a major protest day with this number of events licensed and permitted. So as these um, uh, morning shift officers were showing up at seven o'clock rather than under protest day protocols, the, the midnight shift guys would have been required to work through that shift and do a full 16 hour shift. Instead, they were being sent home. And this is again, not a breakdown of um, it's not government incompetence. This is indeed a prepared planned event that they expect that, well, they knew the event was taking place. They knew thousands of people were coming, but for some reason they did not follow their own protocols for a protest day. Right. And, and that's very troubling. And I want to get into that. Um, but the idea of, again, police shooting flashbang mm-hmm. uh, grenades, tear gas canisters into a crowd of peaceful protesters, or the idea of police just, mercilessly beating women in the face down by the lower West portico. Uh, you know, how, how do, how do we account for, for things like that? Yeah. You have to start with the progression of what happened. First of all, there was an initial violent breach on the West side at that first barricade. This was the famous Ray Epps moment. And when he leaned over and he, he whispered, whispered in Ryan Samsel's ear. And two seconds later, Ryan charged that gate or that, that uh, bike rack barricade. that was yeah. clearly, clearly marked um, uh, with a sign on there that it was a closed area. And it, on every single one of those bike racks, it had that sign on there. And so the, uh, Samsel, as well as these other gentlemen, other individuals, as they pushed that over, the first, we'll call it first blood that was drawn that day was when Officer Carolyn Edwards was pushed over by one of these protesters. She fell backwards, hit her head on a concrete step, was knocked unconscious. They picked her up and brought her to the second line. Then there was a there was another formation as uh, hundreds of people began to gather there on a smaller fence area, and actually kind of a semi-permanent fence, uh, uh, like a black aluminum uh, fence and they gathered there and then from exterior cctv video we can see that the protesters once again breached that line by pushing violently against the police no um flashbangs no tear gas had been deployed no rubber bullets at this point it was not until after that second breach which by the way ray Epps was also at the very tip of that second breach as well and then once that one was breached then they came up to that famous line that then was uh for over an hour hour and a half where the the battle ensued from there. And it was only until then that Capitol Police, with the limited amount of munitions that they had, began to launch some of those into the crowd. Now, there's plenty of uh, use of force experts that will tell you that the deployment of these what they call less than lethal munitions were deployed illegally because they were they were in many cases uh, firing point blank at people. And that's not the way they're designed. In many cases, they were not deploying those at the actual violent perpetrators, but launching them over the heads of the small line of violent perpetrators into the 
the the observers, uh, the, the the more peaceful crowd, and then that continued just standing around. Yeah, then that continued to happen for a, another hour and a half, especially after the D.C. Metro Police arrived. Now they arrived in force. In fact, when they arrived, they came down. They were specifically looking like they were looking at the USCP off uh, the United States Capitol Police officers and saying, where, "Where's your munitions? Where where are your munitions?" They had ran out. They didn't. They had just uh, the, the Capitol Police had a very very limited supply, and uh, probably probably only had um, uh, you know maybe fifteen minutes worth of. of of these munitions. So the Metro police went back to their vans and came back loaded for bear. And they, they unleashed a, a torrent on the crowd from that point forward. And we've seen those, we've seen those videos and I've captured quite a few. I've, I've captured on my own video camera. I captured um, actual illegal use of force outside of their training. And some of that was done by actual munitions training officers from the MPD who were launching them illegally. And we have all of that documented. Wow. 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 So that kind of sounds like a separate issue from the idea that the police, the rank and file weren't warned that there were sanctioned events that had been approved weeks earlier on the Capitol grounds. Those are in fact two separate issues and they have to be treated separately. Okay. What, what about the, uh, again, the, the video of, uh, police officers just beating defenseless women in, in the face down by the, uh, um, the lower West Portico tunnel. That, that, right. It's just and, heartbreaking to see that. Yeah. And, and of course that happened later in the day. And I, I will tell you that I have interviewed officers that were in the tunnel. And this is another part of the unknown story. Again, these people, that did go into that tunnel, they came up against two interior locked doors. These are glass doors and they began pounding on on those doors and breaking the glass. So they were in fact, and again, this is always the front line of these, these perpetrators. And they, and, and believe me when I say this, there were a mix of every type of individual in that crowd. There were MAGA people that let's just call a spade a spade. They, they, overdid it. They committed crimes. There were, in fact, left-wing uh, uh, trained protesters, be that or other, otherwise. And I, I, I like to say it this way. Uh, on that particular day, there were, in fact, bad people who did bad things. There were good people who did good things. And there were otherwise good people who did, you know, stupid things. And so there was a good mix of that in that crowd. So by the time they had got to the tunnel, this, this, this violence had been taking place for about two hours and passions were running hot. The mix of all types of individuals were in that tunnel uh, attempted breach. And I will tell you that this comes straight from unnamed sources, Gentlemen on the force who wish to be whistleblowers, but they're afraid to be whistleblowers because they know their careers, their lives will be destroyed. They'll lose their pensions. They'll lose their income. They won't be able to feed their families. But this is what they have told me is that in that moment when they retreated into the tunnel, they were hearing on their radios that there were thousands of people that had now invaded 
the Capitol itself from all sides. It had been breached from all sides at this point. And they feared themselves because of the, uh, you call it the fog of war, the, you know, the, the confusion of what was taking place. And, and if you haven't heard their radio comms, which I have, I've heard them all. Uh, it's, it's, it is total chaos. They can't possibly know what's going on. And so in that moment, those individuals, those cops that were in the tunnel, they believed that that tunnel was their only route of escape. If in fact they needed to get out because they had no idea what was happening inside the Capitol. If inside the Capitol, those who had breached that were armed, if they were, if they had come in with lethal, deadly intent, they, they just didn't know. And again, we're talking about, we're talking about officers who were told in their morning briefings that there was nothing unusual happening at the Capitol that day. So they were, they were as caught off guard as many of the protesters were, but what we really have to focus on is who were these violent provocateurs? Who were they and what was their purpose that day? Well, and, and and like I said, I want to get to that, but um, you had an interesting phrase there. There was a mix of all kinds of people. And um, regardless of what you think might be going on inside the Capitol or on the steps outside the Capitol, if you're a uniformed police officer and you continue beating a defenseless woman in the face who's not fighting back, that also lends some credence to the idea that there might be all kinds of people who are uniformed police officers. If you catch my drift. Absolutely. And that's, that's, that's absolutely correct. And I will divide those again in a couple of different ways. First of all, the most misbehavior by law enforcement that day came from the DC Metro police, not from Capitol police, not that the Capitol police were without sin. Yeah. Some of those guys overreacted themselves. Um, and I, I, when I wrote my the the first part of my three part series on Capitol Police, which was entitled "The Capitol Police Were Sacrificial Lambs" yeah. on January sixth, yeah, sacrificial pawns. I, I think I was what my title was. I I identified them as such is because at one nineteen p.m. on January sixth, when I turned my camera on on the West Terrace Battle Line, I saw the fear in their eyes. These were officers that had suddenly been called from all over the Capitol. They were outmanned. Remember, we talked about them not being up to all boots on the ground status. Yeah. Uh, roughly 2000 uniformed officers employed by the uh, Capitol Police on January 6th of 2021. The interior commander, uh, Lieutenant Tarek Johnson, he testified that he only had about 120 officers at his disposal at that day. And then, of course, we had the problem of just in the moments before the initial breach, there was a bomb scare, pipe bomb scare at the DNC headquarters. And that split off even more. That was a diversion. We know that those bombs were nothing more than a diversion because they weren't operable. They, they were inert. They, they wouldn't have worked at all. And then the, in the moments after the first breach, then they found another bomb at the the RNC headquarters, and the, and now you had more diversion of officers. So they were extremely undermanned. And can you imagine? And I, I this is the way I positioned it in, in my first story. Imagine yourself. You've been told in your morning briefing that there's nothing unusual going on at the Capitol that day, and suddenly you're looking over that front line of people that are doing violence against you, and now you see tens of 
thousands of people descending on your line of less than a hundred officers. Can you imagine what they thought? Well, I can tell you what they thought by their own testimony. Most of them believe that they weren't going home that day. So when you're in that kind of situation, you can expect some people to overreact. And, and I think that, I think if Americans knew the full story on both sides of those lines, we would, we would probably all have more grace for what took place that day. And I'm talking about individuals from both the left wing and the right wing of political thought. If everybody knew everything that was going on, there would be a lot more grace shown. But again, that's not to that's not to exonerate or, or whitewash over those individuals on either side of the line who did bad things that day. Yeah. And in your writing, um, I learned that the DNC headquarters and the RNC headquarters, which are on either side of the Capitol, are actually part of the area that the United States Capitol Police oversee. Uh, I, I, I'd never seen anybody clarify that before. And it's also been written about extensively by other folks that um, two and a half years into this, the FBI just doesn't seem to have much curiosity about who planted those, quote, pipe bombs, unquote, just doesn't seem to have much curiosity about the identity and connections of the person who just happened to find them. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a whole other story, isn't it, Steve? It is. And I, I will tell you that all of the investigators that I have talking to, uh, spoken to, the um, uh, congressional investigators, many of them are former FBI agents themselves, as well as the FBI whistleblowers that we're familiar with, Steve Friend, Kyle Serafin, and the like. They are absolutely incredulous when it comes to the idea that the FBI, after two and a half years, have not been able to identify who these particular pipe bomb characters are. They don't believe it. They believe that it is another part of the cover up of this story. And I, you know, I, I, I don't have the smoking gun myself and I have not personally worked on that, but that is uh, in fact a, um, a significant uh, part of this overall story. Our interview with Steve Baker continues in just a moment. If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase a vehicle online if you have any questions. One of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You'll be glad you did. I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? 
the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life and migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and the migraines went away for good. Whatever malady you're suffering from, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped so many people I know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com. Click on the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. Mike Lindell says because of your amazing support for MyPillow 2.0, he's expanded MyPillow's USA Manufacturing and Jobs. So he's clearing out his percale bed sheets by giving them to you at closeout prices. King size percale bed sheets, only $39 a set. Queen size, only $35 a set. Full size, $29. And twin size, just $25. Use promo code DWS to take advantage of this once-in-a-lifetime offer. Right now, Mike's biggest My Slippers closeout sale ever is on. Get Mike's all-season My Slippers and Sandals at clearance prices. Mike's all-season moccasin slippers are just $25. Mike's My Slipper Sandals are just $19.50. They're both made with Mike's patented impact gel that absorbs and relieves pressure so you can comfortably wear them all day long. Just use promo code DWS for huge discounts. Remember, DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. Now here's more of our conversation with journalist Steve Baker. Let me get back to something you brought up a little bit ago. Were you shocked when you found out that weeks before January 6th, the Capitol Police had given official approval for an all-day MAGA rally, not just on the Capitol lawn, but on the steps of the U.S. Yes, Capitol. That's correct. Yeah, I, I, I of course, learned about these permits uh, before the Oath Keepers trial, but that was a, basically a rumor at the time. And it was during the Oath Keepers trial, the first one back last fall, that I actually saw because I was in the courthouse every single day of that trial, all nine weeks of that trial. I actually saw those permits signed by the Capitol Police themselves with my own eyes. And the leadership of the Capitol Police had no plan whatsoever to deal with this officially sanctioned rally. They did not tell their officers about it. That's correct. So who did know about it? Well, I mean, certainly Capitol Police leadership did. Uh, Stephen Sund, who was then the chief at the time, he was uh, himself kept, he himself in his own book has talked about how he was kept out of certain meetings. Much of the blame is being focused and uh, the attention is being focused upon uh, the then assistant chief, Yogananda Pittman, 
who was, in fact, not only assistant chief, number two to uh, Stephen's son, but also she was the head of Capitol Police Intelligence. And so it's kind of like, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you can't help but say that the buck stops on chief son's um, desk. But the person who seems to have been in control of whether deliberate mishandling, malfeasance and co- or incompetence would be Yogananda Pittman. So former chief Stephen Sund is trying to point fingers at Yogananda Pittman. But. It's inconceivable that the former chief himself would not have known that permits had been granted for the MAGA rally on the Capitol lawn and steps that day. Yeah, it it would be inconceivable. And I would not want to quote here because with all the data that I have collected and seen and read, one of the things that's escaping my memory right now is whether or not Stevenson actually acknowledges the uh, his his knowledge of those permits or not. I don't remember that. But he does, in fact, talk about how he was kept out of the loop of several things and blocked by uh, Pittman herself and then other uh, of the Capitol Police uh, board and and leadership. Okay. That leads me to this. Conservative commentators have pointed out that guys like Ray Epps, who you mentioned earlier, had helped take down barricades with the equivalent of no, no trespassing signs on them. Um, I think you said restricted area. Yeah. Closed, closed area is actually what they said. Yeah. All right. So guys like Ray Epps helped take down these barricades with the closed area signs on them at the Capitol before most folks even arrived from President Trump's speech 30 to 45 minutes away. So people didn't realize when they got there, they weren't supposed to be trespassing on Capitol grounds. But if there was an officially sanctioned all-day rally on the Capitol grounds, why would there be closed area signs up in the first place? Well, that's another thing that we know for a fact now. And this is what I wish the the entire populace of America, left and right, understood right now, is that the Capitol Police issued permits for protest to happen in certain locations that were inside those closed area barricades. Now, that does not justify a violent breach of those. That does not justify knocking an officer over and knocking her unconscious. None of that's justified. But nevertheless, this is the confusion that was created in the moment by, again, either gross incompetence or a more nefarious plot. And that's what we're trying to uncover. Which one is it? So I got to ask you, now that the um, Republicans are in charge of the U.S. House and they got a government weaponization against citizens subcommittee and they're in charge of that. They're in charge of the House Judiciary Committee, the House Oversight Committee. Are any of them asking these questions? Are any of them subpoenaing? Uh, former Chief C- Stephen Sun, former Assistant Chief uh, Yogananda Pittman. Is there any attempt by Republican leadership in the House to get to the bottom of any of this? We do know that in just very recent weeks, just in the, within the last month, that Yogananda Pittman has been called into two closed sessions. 
We've seen the photos of her entering the O'Neill office building uh, and exiting. Uh, we know that she was called in and we know what the purpose of that was. And that was specifically questions regarding her uh, being given a uh, unpaid leave of absence status after she took her new job as the chief of police at UC Berkeley. Now, just, you know, outside of San Francisco, just outside of Nancy Pelosi's district, I might also add. And so this was her cherry new job that she got out there uh, with uh, at least twice the income that she was making as a uh, Capitol Police assistant uh, chief. And uh, while she was doing that and already sworn into office of her new job out in California, she was still on what was called unpaid leave status so that she could continue the process of collecting enough time to earn her full Capitol Police pension, therefore being allowed to double dip in her remaining years of her career here. Put that together. You know, Brother Steve, it almost sounds like, uh, <laughs> and I use this term advisedly, malfeasance. If I yes, it does. And I will tell you this. I will tell you this, that uh, by and large, the existing Capitol Police uh, members that were on duty on January 6th, and by the way, hundreds of Capitol Police officers resigned their jobs, took early retirements, got the heck out of Dodge yeah. at that event. They, and the reason they did is, is um, Yogananda Pittman had a 92% no confidence vote uh, just in the couple of weeks after January 6th. But she was then appointed as acting chief because son was forced to resign on, the, on uh, January 7th. Uh, she was then appointed as acting chief. She received a couple of weeks later a 92% no confidence vote from her, um, her union, which of course are the, the, the line, all of the officers. And they don't like her. They don't trust her. Uh, they off the current officers that were there that day do not trust the existing, uh, Capitol Police chief, uh, chief manger. And they want Sund back. They want Stephen Sund back. They liked him. They trusted him. They believed in him. And they think that he was as much a part of the setup and, in fact, may very well have been the um, the target of a, um, you know, a, a, a type of inner office coup uh, that Pittman plotted to uh, kick him out so that she could have that job. The scapegoat, the sacrificial lamb. Yeah. Uh, to use a um, term that seems appropriate there. So. What are we left to think when we found out that it was last year, um, Congress, both sides of the aisle, Democrats, Republicans, um, gave uh, commendations, awards, medals to all the officers that were there on January 6, 2021, including Lieutenant Michael Byrd. Mm-hmm who shot a woman, Ashley Babbitt, in cold blood with no warning whatsoever. What are we to think when House Speaker Jeff McCarthy was asked about that? And he said, A, he had not watched the video, and B, he was confident Lieutenant Byrd was just doing his job, just another day of the office. This is, this is one of those things that I mentioned to you earlier. Uh, at the very beginning of this interview where I said, I have changed my mind many times based on new evidence, new understanding, 
new video, different angles, all of those kinds of things. I have looked at the bird situation as close as I can possibly look at it. I have interviewed officers who know him personally, who are friends with him. Yeah. I have uh, tried to uh, secure an interview directly with Michael Bird. That was uh, disapproved by his attorney because he's facing a lawsuit now from the Ashley Babbitt family, a uh, civil lawsuit. So he's not speaking publicly any longer. And so I have not been able to speak to him personally, but I will tell you this. And this is the part where, again, reasonable, reasonable people can see this completely differently through different lenses, but I will do the facts of that situation. When Ashley jumped through that broken window, she was not looking to attack Congress members. She was not looking to perpetrate any form of violence. She was in panic mode. In fact, in just the seconds before she leapt through that window, the guy who smashed that window a known Antifa member, she punched him in the face, knocking off his glasses and his hat. She punched him. It's on camera. Yeah, so the, we know. Guy, yeah. Yeah. So she, she was absolutely on the other side of that. In fact, when she was the first one to get into that small hallway there where those doors were and a couple of officers were posted up because there were Congress members on the other side of that door. That was the area where the House of Representatives were being evacuated through at the time. Yeah. And Michael Byrd, I know this for a fact, was the trailing officer. He was the last one to guard that area until all of those officers were evacuated. I mean, all those Congress members were evacuated. Then he would have followed them down into the tunnels. That was that was the protocol that they were operating under at that moment. And unfortunately, because Yogananda Pittman did not respond to the radio comms from Officer Lieutenant Tarek Johnson, when he begged for the uh, Senate to, you know, he said, I've got, I've got a clear sight. I've got, I've got room. I've got time to get these guys out before, you know, the Senate out before these, um, uh, all these protesters arrive. And she wouldn't respond. He asked over and over again. She didn't respond. She, he waited eight minutes. And then finally he said, basically, screw it. I'll do it myself. He said, even on the radio comms, he actually said this, I'll take the 550 and the 534, which is the actual United States Capitol Police um, forms for disciplinary action. He said, I will take the discipline, but I am evacuating the Senate of my own accord. And he did that as soon as he received confirmation that all of the senators were safe and were out of the area and, and were, were secure down in the lower areas of the Capitol. He then busted, uh, uh, you know, all the way over to the house side and then repeated the same action over there. If Yogananda Pittman had responded to his first request to evacuate when he told her that he had a clear line over the uh, USCP radio comms, when Ashley got to that doorway, Bird would have already been gone. He would have been trailing those representatives down into the tunnels at that point. Unfortunately, she was in a panic. She wanted out of that area. Her family says that she's claustrophobic and that they believe that she just panicked when she leapt through that window. And that's where um, reasonable people are going to disagree about what took place. Obviously, she was unarmed. Obviously, Michael Byrd 
could not in a split second know that. But I will say this, that use of force effort uh, experts that I've spoken to, and this is this is the differentiation on how the United States Capitol Police are trained as opposed to other agencies. And I, and I think this this really uh, is important for your audience to understand. And your many of your audience members are not going to agree with this or agree with me or agree with the policy. But this is what it is. Do you remember seeing the video of the very first window breach on the west side, what they call the, the, the Senate wing door? There was a two before that went through the window. And then there was two guys that were coming through that window. And a Capitol Police officer had a little, you know, um, a keychain um, pepper spray canister. She squirted, made a couple squirts at the guy as a jumping, jumping through the window. And then she ran away okay. with about three or four other officers. You remember that according to Capitol police use of force protocol, they are not allowed to use lethal force unless they deem themselves to be uh, facing lethal force themselves deadly, uh, deadly attack against themselves, but they are not allowed to use lethal force for property damage. And there's one exception, according to the officers that I've spoken to, and that is unless they are breaching an area where Congress members exist. If they breach a door. Now, do you remember the other, the famous scene of the guy looking like he's from, uh, you know, Stephen King movie. He's got his face in through the window of the actual house chamber. And there's, there's um, plainclothes security sitting down there with their guns drawn, their handguns drawn and face and pointed at those, uh, at those doorways that the furniture turned over barricading the door. If those guys had come through that door, they would have been shot because there were still members inside the, the chamber. And essentially the reason why, again, fair-minded people can disagree here. Did Michael Byrd overreact? Could he have waited? Yes, certainly he could have, but there is a reason why technically that he was cleared and given a so-called clean shoot is because right behind him were actual house of representative members in that hallway. And that's why he was given a clean shoot. Um, um, exoneration, so to speak. And yet standing around Ashley Babbitt were uniformed, armed law enforcement officers. Yes. Standing right around her. And Bird at this point takes the risk of hitting one of them. Um, that That's number one. Number two, also standing there with her is John Sullivan. Um, we later found out has done all kinds of Antifa things and never been prosecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, also, in the one interview that Bird did, which was the softball of softball interviews, Lester Holt, NBC News, yep. Yep. he admits he has no idea if she was armed. Um, right. He's in friendly territory speaking to Lester Holt of NBC News, and he looks as nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. And and also, we find out after Action Report that Bird refused to cooperate. With the police investigation of the shoot, I mean, there's just so much that's wrong about this, in my humble opinion, including him being given com- being given commendations to everybody else. You, you mentioned the thing about in the House chamber. I have seen a still shot of chairs turned over and this kind of stuff and people looking very scared. Uh, not the one with 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 the guy looking like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Um, 
But with Bird there, crouched down with his finger on the trigger of his gun, with nobody around mm-hmm. that's trying to get in, and people going, man, this guy here is a loose cannon. And he and Bird does have a couple of um, uh, bad marks in his record. Uh, he obviously uh, he he famously left his handgun inside of a public restroom one oh, time. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then there were a couple of other uh, disciplinary things that he had in his background. And um, I I I will tell you that it was it was the the worst of moments, obviously for all involved i can guarantee you he wished he had never taken that shot but i also have heard him also say that he believed that he saved lives by doing so or at least at the moment he thought he was doing that and 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 you can also you can also and I, and again i and i i've made this point already a couple of times i'm not trying to defend or exonerate or uh i'm i'm just trying to ask reasonable people to right. put yourself in a, in a position where he's behind a locked set of doors, closed windows. People are pounding on those They're And then all of a sudden they're breaking this glass. He has no idea what's on the other side of that window or those two doors. He has no idea. Well, no, wait just, a you got windows on either side of the, of the doors though. Right. I mean, he can't see through those windows because we can see, from the Ashley Babbitt side through the, yes, but, this is, but this is what he's seeing. He's seeing violent pounding, breaking. He's seeing tools being used, helmets being used to break those windows. So, and he, and he's got Congress members standing right behind him. So and he's so, going to see the armed uniformed law enforcement officers just standing there around Ashley Babbitt. I've, I've seen the angle. I would, I would go. So because the two officers that were there originally at the door, when Ashley first got there, Ashley chastised the officers for not doing enough to stop the violence. Yeah. Right. She was obviously not one of the bad people that I mentioned earlier. Right. Remember, I said, there were bad people doing bad things, oh, yeah. good people doing good things. And right. You know, otherwise good people doing stupid things. She, right. was, she was in the good, the good person category. Absolutely. But he, but he didn't know that. But by the time that other rest of the crowd surged, which included at least two Antifa members that we're aware of known Antifa members, including uh, John Sullivan, I, that at that moment, those two officers left and now we had a tactical team coming up the stairs from behind. And from that angle, it is entirely possible that because they were lower on a lower coming up those lower um, steps right behind Ashley, that he from his angle, it's very possible he couldn't see them at the time. I, and I, I'm again, I yeah. don't know. I, I, I didn't. There's no camera angle. He was not wearing a body cam because Capitol Police do not wear body cams. Uh, the, the body cameras that we have seen from the event are all Metropolitan uh, okay. Police body cams. And so we don't know what he actually could see or not at the moment. All I know is, is that did he overreact? Yeah, probably so was actually in just the worst of all places at the worst time possible in the, you know, in her life. Obviously the answer to that is yes. And, and that confusion and that heat of the moment, um, bad things happened. And unfortunately somebody died. Yeah. No, I, I didn't want to give anybody the impression that you were 
you know, acting as a defense attorney for, for <laughs> yeah. the word. And I, definitely not. You know, you, you were saying reasonable people can look at this this way and look at that that way. And and I get it. I just kind of wanted to, you know, try to fully flesh it out. I mean, when I saw the interview he did with Lester Holt. Yeah, yeah. I certainly didn't get the impression that he had any misgivings in retrospect. I think he was like, nope, did the right thing. Do it again. But, you know. Uh, I guess, you know, you come to a, a different conclusion um, because, I mean, again, you've interviewed a lot of people that the rest of us haven't. So, um, yeah. And, and and let's just go back to this situation just for one more moment. And that is this is this is the most confounding moment of the day for me as an investigator. Yeah. having talked to people on both sides, having been able to see probably much more evidence than other people have had the opportunity to look at. And I will tell you that I personally have not been able to nail down a final absolute conclusion on what took place in that moment. While having said that I have friends of mine on both sides who take total polar opposite positions on that. Some believe that I have, I have investigative journalist friends who believe that Michael bird is a cold blooded murderer. And I have other people that believe that he uh, in fact, acted appropriately according to his training in that moment. Put me in the former category. <laughs> um, like you say, people of goodwill can, can disagree. Yes. The conclusion of our interview with Steve Baker is coming right up. You know, the great Ronald Reagan once said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one, investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. They don't tend to depreciate over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. Andrew Sorcini with Beverly Hills Precious Metals has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. Beverly Hills Precious Metals brings precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. Mike Flynn told us about them, and they are our gold buyer of choice. To find out more, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. Make sure you ask about the general Mike Flynn silver coin and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Beverly Hills Precious Metals helps folks protect their finances, wealth, and investments. If you want to drop your big liberal cell phone carrier, Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier, is a perfect solution. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. And switching to Pager Mobile usually only takes 15 to 20 minutes. When you switch to Pager Mobile, you shift your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. Pager Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom 
freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Yeah, let me ask you something. Why continue shopping big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now you can get around this crazy inflation by shopping factory direct at a family-owned made-in-America manufacturer. Americans are walking away from the big box conglomerates and deciding to buy only USA. Join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. These products include fresh American-raised beef. Raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone, this beef is known as Never Ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Email us at buyonlyusa at proton.me, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. Buyonlyusa at proton.me. And now, the rest of our interview with journalist Steve Baker. A fellow you mentioned earlier, the most prominent, alleged (laughs) instigator of alleged law-breaking at the Capitol, January 6, 2021. A man named Ray Epps. He's on video from the evening of January 5th saying, I'm probably going to be arrested for this, but we have to go into the Capitol tomorrow. People start yelling, no. People start saying, fed, fed, fed. At which point he looks somewhat disappointed when they start yelling fed at him. But again, numerous times, evening of January 5th and during the day, January 6th, we have to go into the Capitol. That's where our problems lie. He texted his nephew on January 6th as things were starting to finally die down a few hours into the situation, telling his nephew in the text that he had orchestrated what happened. To this day, he is still on the FBI Washington field office's most wanted poster on Twitter, their pinned tweet on Twitter. But two and a half years later, they just won't arrest him. What What are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, yeah, let's 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 back up a little bit and clear up just a, a couple of uh, the the finer points of the sure. factual details. There, yeah, sure. he, he is. We are still seeing the image on Twitter of when he was on the FBI's most wanted list. He was number sixteen. Oh, yeah. the January 6th. He was then some weeks later taken off. So he's no longer there. They have, but, but, but they, they still have the tweet up though. Yeah. Oh, we, we see the tweet, you know, we see the tweet all over Twitter. People I, are still I mean, sharing I, it all the time. I realized that, that the FBI itself took his face off the most wanted poster. Mm-hmm. The Washington field office of the FBI yeah. still has the original right, most wanted poster with him. Featured prominently right. as the pinned tweets on Twitter. And for people yep. who are not on Twitter or like normal folks, what this means is when you go on somebody's profile on Twitter, 
in this case, the FBI Washington field office, the first thing you see at the top of their page is this tweet. Yeah. And I find it odd. It is odd. It's very strange. They they took him off. The FBI itself took him off the most wanted poster. And yet the Washington field office of the FBI says, oh, I think we're going to leave this up and just pretend we're still looking for this guy that that 60 Minutes is already interviewed and we know exactly where he is. Oh, by the way, if I may, if I may, because I did a whole show on this, um, breaking down and parsing the 60 Minutes interview. Mm. And they're saying, well, golly. He, he was a Trump supporter and he had to sell his house there in Arizona. And he and his wife are now, uh, you know, in this, in this motor home somewhere up in the Rockies. I investigated and I can find no evidence whatsoever that Ray Epps ever sold his home in central Arizona. I'm just saying, <laughs> but, but if you're 60 minutes, you got to take his word for it. Just like George Stephanopoulos took uh, Sam Bankman Fried's word for whatever he wanted to talk about. I'm sorry, I'm straying too far afield. I apologize. <laughs> Ray, well, Ray Epps is is uh, a confounding character. First of all, it makes no sense whatsoever that the mainstream media, multiple mainstream media sources, have circled wagons around him. Now, when that happens, something else is taking place in the background. Generally, that means they are being fed information from because they are. Let's let's just call it what it is. These mouthpieces, be it CBS 60 Minutes or the New York Times and their big puff piece. They've done a couple of them on uh, on Ray Epps. Uh, they are being fed information directly from the government. They right. are towing the line. These right. agencies are, in fact, they are the palace guards of the administration, the Department of Justice, FBI, etc. And I have personally spoken to, on numerous occasions, Alan Fuhrer, who authored that piece with the New York Times, who flew out to California and met with the Epps family out there, Ray and his wife. And he looked me dead in the eye one time and said, you've got to let this thing go. And he said, Ray Epps is too stupid to be an instigator or to be a, a confidential human source or a federal agent or whatever. He says he, he he's not smart enough to put his pants on in the morning without his wife, you know, telling him that it was time or how to do so. I mean, this is literally what I what I've been told. But I will tell you that in the same conversations with that I've had with these other journalists, I've said to them, why haven't you shown the video of Ray Epps being escorted out of the crowd by eight men, four in front, four in back, quote unquote, military stack formation as they winded their way through thousands of people. Because we now have the Capitol uh, CCTV visuals of that event taking place. See, I haven't even seen that. And this is in contradiction to Ray's under oath testimony before Congress that he was only in D.C. with his son and his son's best friend. Yeah, right. Who were these eight men that escorted him out of the crowd? So you asked Alan Fuhrer in New York Times about that. What was his response? He says, I haven't seen that video. And then when he wrote a second story on that. And then I tagged him on Twitter and I said, Alan. What about the eight men who escorted him out of the crowd? Because in his second story, when he wrote the story about the um, uh, the fact that the Ray Epps is suing Fox News, 
he didn't mention that yet again. Yeah. And so, and so the, the most nefarious thing that the mainstream media does, it's not what they tell us. It's what they hide from us. It's what they don't tell us. Yeah. It it will always be the lie of omission is the biggest problem that we have with the mainstream press. If you're not going to tell both sides of the story, just as I did with you with Michael bird, I'm trying to let everybody know what I know. I can't, I can't draw a conclusion on every, on every issue, but I can tell you what I know from both sides. And, and that is exactly the way I've tried to handle my investigations of the Capitol police. It's the way I've tried to handle my investigations of Ray Epps. I think Ray Epps is guilty of something. I think Ray Epps was working for someone, but I don't have a smoking gun on that. But I will tell you the very fact that the MSM at large will not tell his full story and will not show that other video is implication enough for me to continue my belief that there's more to the app story than what um, the government is, is uh, allowing us to know. So um, I got a suggestion in case you wind up having another conversation with Alan Fewer, New York times reporter about Ray Epps who insists that Ray Epps is too stupid to fill in the blank. Um, there's an alternative explanation. What if he's just a good actor? What if he put one over on Alan Fuhr and made him think he's too stupid to put his socks on or whatever you want to call it? I mean, this would not be the first time in history that someone was a good actor and appeared to be one thing when he's another. You know, have you ever seen the movie Rain Man with uh, Dustin Hoffman and and Tom Cruise? Of course. Okay, great. So Dustin Hoffman does such a good job of playing this idiot savant that I forget it's Dustin Hoffman. (laughs) He becomes this guy. Right. Now, I'm not saying Ray Epps is as good an actor as uh, Dustin Hoffman, but Maybe you wouldn't have to be as good an actor to fool somebody like Alan Fewer at the New York Times. I'm just 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 throwing it out there. <laughs> what do you think? I I my first impression is the first time that I talked to Alan about this is that he is a true believer in that story about Ray Epps. But it was at that moment that I gave him additional evidence. And then when he wrote another story, he did not include that additional evidence in the story. By doing by not doing that, he is complicit in not allowing the American public to judge for themselves based on all of the evidence. Yeah. Well, if you put too much evidence out there that goes against the prevailing mainstream media narrative on a controversial story and you work for the New York Times, then I think you're going to upset some of your readers, aren't you? Pretty good chance. Yeah. So if there was an officially approved all day rally on the lawn and steps of the Capitol on January 6, 2021, and you've seen the evidence, it's out there. Why are people who didn't even go into the Capitol building that day being prosecuted and sentenced to prison terms? <laughs> well, I will tell you that the number one goal, and this is the overarching goal of the Department of Justice related to January 6th. It's not to punish people for crossing a bike rack barricade with a, you know, do not enter sign on it. It's not 
for people that walked through a door some 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes after the doors were breached and there was a free flow of humanity walking through those doors and they looked at you know their wife or their husband or their girlfriend, boyfriend and said, hey, look, we can go in. And then innocently walked into the building, took a couple selfies and exited 10 minutes later. It is not even those who were violent that day, the primary motive of the DOJ to bring prosecution or justice in those cases, although I agree that they should be in most of those cases. It is primarily their mission to thwart, stop, suppress, and end the right to free speech expression. And I can give you multiple examples in the trials and in the uh, selective nature of the prosecution related to independent journalists like myself yeah, and why they take action against some of them and why they do not against others. And also I can tell you this is that let's just go back to the, let's, let, let, let's, let's just say that you were a, a young couple, 30 something years old, and you were there to uh, support your president and you wanted to um, see what he had to say that day at the speech at the ellipse. And then uh, 45 minutes to an hour, two hours later, you, you wandered over to the Capitol after all the breaches had happened. You're not going to see any barricades. You're not going to see any do not enter signs. All you're going to see is tens of thousands of people pressed up against the Capitol. Yeah. And then you work your way up to get close and see what's going on. Maybe you want to, maybe it's your first time ever to be at the Capitol. So you want to get as close as you can. And then all of a sudden you see an open door and you see hundreds of people filing in through that door. So you take your, wife, your husband by the hand, and you walk through that door, you walk through down a couple hallways, you maybe walk into the rotunda. You've never seen the the awe inspiring nature of the inside of that building. You take a couple of videos, you take a couple pictures of yourself, and then you turn around and you walk out 10 minutes later. If that's all you did, doc, you probably were given what they call the, the four basic misdemeanor charges for that day. And then you you were able to plea down to one of those, probably parading or, you know, uh, being inside a restricted area. And then you were given two years probation, a thousand dollar fine, maybe a hundred hours community service. And you were sent back home to put your life back together. Because, by the way, back home, you lost everything because both of you lost your jobs. You were fired as soon as your arrest was uh, made known to the public. And of course, local media was all over that. You were fired. Uh, you might have been kicked out of your church. You were kicked out of your clubs, whatever organizations that you were part of. You were you were disenfranchised. You were uh, you were depersoned, basically, for having been there that day. You didn't do any violence. You didn't break anything. You didn't attack any cops. You just took a couple selfies inside the Capitol. You even stayed within the rope lines. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And in that scenario, you probably, as I said, you got two years probation, a fine, and were sent back home to try and recover your, your old life back. But if you were the exact same couple and you walked and did the exact same thing at the same time, and when you walked into the, to the rotunda, you chanted USA, 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 whose house, our house, whose house, our house, or sang the national anthem, then you received additional charges. And you were then probably given two months, four months, eight months in jail for nothing more than opening your mouth, for participating in the revelry rather than just taking a selfie and getting back out of Dodge. That's the there. And that same level of selective 
penalty goes all the way up to Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, who was convicted for nothing more than scary words that he had uttered prior to January 6th in the months preceding when he was asking the president to invoke the Insurrection Act. And he was warning people, if we don't take charge of this stolen election now, we're going to lose our country and it's going to get worse. And there's going to be a civil war down the down the line because Stuart Rodens never entered the Capitol. He never committed violence. He never broke anything. And the judge told him at his sentencing hearing, and I was there to hear it. He said, you're eloquent, you're smart. And he said, you have the ability to lead people. Therefore, you're a danger to society. And I'm sentencing you to 18 years in prison. And, you know, hardly any, hardly anyone in the Republican Party in Congress says anything about this. And late last year, 18 Republican United States senators voted with all the Democrats to approve a $1.66 trillion spending bill to include hundreds of millions more for the DOJ and the FBI to have more money to put Trump supporters in prison. And, you know, we're doing a national podcast, but everybody's somewhere. You're in the Eastern time zone. I'm in the central time zone. I happen to be sitting in Little Rock, Arkansas. And when I tell people uh, who live in the state I am in that both of their United States senators, Tom Cotton and John Bozeman, voted to give hundreds of millions more to the DOJ and the FBI to continue going after people who vote for them. Mm -hmm. They're horrified. They haven't heard about this. They have no idea. Um, it's, um, you know, one of the guys who, who voted for this is Lindsey Graham, <laughs> Lindsey Graham, United States Senator, longtime South Carolina voted to make it easier for this justice department to go after his good buddy, Donald J. Trump, who continues to campaign with Lindsey Graham. Mm hmm. And it is just mind-boggling to me. Um, I, 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 you know, I wish somebody would tell former President Trump, "This guy's not your friend." But uh, it's—I I don't know. I, I guess that's, in a way, a whole separate issue. But it shouldn't be because you know, when you talk about, maybe it's not a separate issue. When you talk about these people being persecuted. Because the powers that be, uh, Biden's DOJ, Merrick Garland, definitely Lisa Monaco is actually running the place, um, and all these liberal judges in, in D.C. are trying to shut down people's First Amendment right to free speech. And federal prosecutors using these trials as incriminating evidence, proof that the defendants actually agreed with Donald Trump on something proof that the defendants actually supported Donald Trump because the jury pool over 92% of the available jury pool in Washington, DC voted for Joe Biden. 
And they want to put Trump supporters in prison regardless of the fact uh, uh, whether there's any evidence that, that any laws were even broken. And um, Steve, I don't know how to explain to most Trump supporters this fact that if and when Donald Trump is hauled into a courtroom in Washington, D.C., he's going to be facing a jury who wants to put him in prison, and the fact that he may not have broken a single law is not going to stop them. And I don't know how to prepare people uh, for this possibility. Your thoughts? The only chance he has of avoiding conviction and probably a prison term for the charges that he faces right now on this most uh, recent indictment is for change of venue and for there to be an exception made and that um, that trial is televised, which of course doesn't happen in federal court. And that is the only chance he has. If he faces a DC jury pool, which is made up of 92 and a half percent Biden voters, that means 92 and a half percent of the people that will be selected from the pool of, of uh, uh, registered voters in DC voted against him in the last election. And they also have been pounded for two and a half years, not two and a half. We're going all the way back to 2015. They have received every type of overwhelming negative publicity um, uh, campaigning by the media, by the local um, uh, administrations against Donald Trump. As far as they're concerned, the entire episode, all of the displacement and all of the inconveniences that followed them with the fencing and all of the the additional uh, barricaded roads and highway uh, and uh, um, traffic problems after January 6th, they all believe that that's Donald Trump's fault. Yeah. And so as a result of that, if he doesn't get a change of venue, it will be. In, that in and of itself will be a gross miscarriage of justice. That's impossible for him to face a quote unquote jury of his peers. If he wants, if the government genuinely wants him to have a jury of his peers, then they need to put this and move this to a district with an equal amount of voters uh, or the voting pool had an equal amount of people that voted for Biden and voted for Trump in 2020. Otherwise it's not a jury of his peers. It is a stacked jury. And the fait accompli is already determined. Now, I see people on social media saying, well, the Supreme Court will overturn it. Supreme Court will overturn it. You know, uh, we've, we've got a majority of conservatives on the Supreme Court. You know, Steve, I go back to late 2020. After the election, when the state of Texas sued several other states. For violating their rights to. Uh, a fair election. And the U.S. Constitution says that if a state sues one or more other states, that's going to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. It doesn't go up through the food chain like any other kind of lawsuit would. The U.S. Supreme Court shall hear this case. And the U.S. Supreme Court voted seven to two. No, no. 
Mm-hmm. Don't care what the Constitution says. We're not going to hear the case. And of those seven, we include all three Trump appointees, Amy Coney Barrett, mm-hmm. Bill Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh all said, nope, don't care what the Constitution says. We're not going to hear the case. Now, I, I, I hope this will, would, would, would not be a factor in their deciding what they would do with a guilty verdict against Donald Trump. That as I am sure you know, it is against the law to protest peacefully outside the homes of Supreme Court justices. Mm-hmm. Peacefully. It's against the law. If you're attempting to sway their opinion in any kind of case, and yet the U.S. DOJ has ordered federal marshals not to arrest these people, and I'll go further. It's also against Virginia state law to protest outside federal judges' homes to try to change their uh, opinion on anything. And as of yet, Governor Yunkin of uh, Virginia has not given any any um, orders for Virginia law enforcement to protest these people either. So if Supreme Court justices are concerned about their own personal safety and the personal safety of their families, should they overturn a guilty verdict against Donald Trump, I, I think we're in for a world of hurt. Well, I'll tell you something, Doc. I, in just the moments that you have been talking here, I have received a letter from U.S. Attorney Matthew Graves while we've been sitting here. Yeah. Cover letter of a subpoena that I have received. I am looking at it right now for the first time. And I am not going to take the time right now to read the subpoena, but I will tell you that the final paragraph signed by Matthew Graves is, although you are not required to do so, you are requested not to disclose the existence of this subpoena. (laughs) Any such disclosure could impede the investigation being conducted and thereby interfere with the enforcement of the law. Thank you for your cooperation in this matter. Sincerely, Matthew M. Graves, United States Attorney. Speaking of so I just disclosed to you the existence of this subpoena. Yeah. Although I did not tell you what it is. So there you go. Uh, speaking of trying to shut down people's First Amendment right to free speech, uh, for that matter, people's First Amendment right to the freedom of the press, Matthew Graves is like, yeah, I don't care, man. Constitution, schmonstitution. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what the First Amendment says. Because he thinks he's going to continue to get away with this for the rest of his life. And he may. And yet I do know that after we leave this mortal coil, we'll all stand before our maker and give an account for what we've done here. And um, Matthew Graves does not get an exemption from that. I wish him a long and happy life. But eventually we all stand before God and have to give an account. And uh, some, some folks don't believe that. And uh, nothing I can do about that. Um, so at this time, you would uh, choose not to get into the um, the details of said subpoena. 
I, I think I need to read it and digest it and okay. find out exactly what it is. I have already revealed because before I ever saw this um, exoneration, not to reveal, reveal the existence of the subpoena, I've already been doing that for three days. I was notified on Friday that I had a subpoena coming for my videos, uh, my January 6th videos, and I have talked about it. I've written about it. I've posted about it. It's on all of my social media. So, the existence of it is out there before I received his, um, you know, admonition not to uh, not to put this out there, but it's done. And so um, uh, I guess based on the fact that I need to uh, it's several pages long, I need to yeah, over it with a fine tooth comb and discuss this with my attorneys. I probably won't get into uh, the details of it at this time, except for what I've already told it, uh, the world is that I my January 6th videos are being subpoenaed. I do not know if this is part of an ongoing investigation into me because back in November of 2021, I received a, or my attorney received notice from the assistant U.S. attorney that I was going to be charged within the week. This was the week before Thanksgiving of 2021 for my journalism. Uh, And as a result of that, we launched a media offensive and I sent out uh, hundreds of press releases. And then we I was doing interviews uh, with media sources, large and small. And I then brought on a, 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 a an additional uh, counsel who uh, handles, uh, uh, you know, the District of Columbia who practices there. And my my D.C. counsel contacted the AUSA who had my case the very uh, Monday following Thanksgiving of 21. And he sent her an email first thing in the day. And then he called her later in the day. And then we never heard from them again. It's been 20 over 20 months after she said that I would be charged within the week. Now, it's been over 20 months. And all of a sudden, this past Friday, we heard from them again for the first time and that they had service of process for me. And uh, we were told that it was a subpoena for my videos. Uh, what they do not disclose. I have already just read the notes from my attorney and what they do not disclose is that this is an ongoing part of their investigation of me, or if they're looking at something else, using my videos to examine another case, I have no idea yet. I, uh, I can tell you that my friends, uh, the FBI whistleblowers uh, that I've mentioned earlier, uh, particularly uh, Steve Friend, he told me that this was a case of the FBI and the government papering my case. And what he means by that is just keeping me at, you know, keeping me at the top of the pile. So when and if they decide to go ahead and charge me or not, they'll have they'll have a additional uh, paper trail and discussion because it obviously they've let a lot of time go by without no, no, no notification whatsoever, whether they had shelved my case, put it at the bottom of somebody's pile, whether they had uh, dropped it. We know nothing. Wow. 20 months. Um, Matthew Graves for the record, Matthew Graves, um, this uh, attorney in charge of the prosecutions, the January 6th prosecutions, he and his wife are uh, thoroughly committed radical political Democrats, uh, and that's a whole other show. Uh, yeah. The conflict of interest is could not be uh, more well defined here. But um, 
if at some point, either later today or tomorrow, the next day, whenever, after having looked at the subpoena and conferred with your attorneys, you want to come back on and talk about it. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll definitely keep that door open. Um, I certainly appreciate your, your patience because this has gone on a, a lot longer, I guess, than, than we both probably thought it would. Uh, can I bring up one more question before I yeah, let you go? Absolutely. Okay. It's recently been revealed that Tucker Carlson interviewed former U.S. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund. We talked about him earlier. And former Chief Sund said there were a lot of federal agents yes. who, who had infiltrated the crowd of Trump supporters at the Capitol January 6, 2021. Tucker was taken off the air by Fox before he was able to play the interview. Mm-hmm. What do you think about former Chief Sun's claim? I, I think Chief Sun is exactly correct. He certainly has the connections to know uh, what the makeup of that crowd uh, was. He did not say whether they're purposes were nefarious or not. He didn't try to implicate them in any wrongdoing, but it raises the larger question, Doc, of why did they know that they needed to have so many elements from so many different agencies embedded in the crowd, undercover and otherwise. And this is the this is where a lot of my own investigation, and this is why I believe, frankly, if I'm being completely open with you, since we do already have the fact that this subpoena exists for me right now is that they know what I've been working on. They know that I have specifically been looking at the embedded um, agencies in that crowd, which goes all the way up to uh, U.S. Army special forces that were deployed that day in the crowd undercover. And I was the very first one to report on that. February 24th of 2021, six weeks after January 6th, Newsweek confirmed that a year, uh, 10 months later in their story. And I have uh, been working on that ever since. And I have learned a lot more. I'm not ready to go public with yet, but there is impossible. It is absolutely impossible that they have not been monitoring enough of my communications to know exactly how close I'm getting to this story. Yeah. Well, that brings up the article you did recently. You talk about military uh, special operations. There's a unit that is so secret that it doesn't even have a name. Yeah. And there's a possibility. See, I think sometimes when people say, argue about whether uh, Ray Epps was an FBI agent or an FBI uh, human resource, uh, confidential informant or whatever for, for the FBI, some kind of asset for the FBI. Maybe they're asking the wrong question. Mm-hmm. We know he's retired military. Yeah. And I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, the phrase sheep dipping. <laughs> but and, and he's a former Oath Keeper as well. Back in the day, like say, if you want to go back to the Vietnam War and U.S. military wanted to send somebody into Cambodia to do clandestine stuff that had to be um, not officially recognized. Um, as Oliver North would say, plausible deniability. Well, the, these these military guys would have been retired or whatever was still on the payroll. And if they turned up dead, oh, well, he was a deserter. 
if he got in and out, nobody knew about it. He gets right back officially on the military payroll. So, you know, who, who knows with Ray? Who, who knows who actually paid him? Who knows who he was actually working for? But I'll tell you one thing. Um, former Senate Sergeant at Arms, Michael Stinger, who uh, unfortunately passed away June of last year, and people are wondering about the circumstances of his death before he passed away. He was talking about the fact that um, there were a lot of well-trained people in that crowd and that needed to be looked into. And Michael, Sting, Michael Stinger's testimony before the Senate, uh, I believe it was February 23rd of 21. So this was only six weeks after January 6th. It was his final time to speak before Congress, he said in his opening statement that this was an opportunity for them to investigate who the paid agitators were in the crowd that day. Yep. It's his statement, paid agitators. Now, there's a lot of conspiracy around Michael Stinger uh, because he died a year and a half later. I can tell you that I have personally interviewed his friends uh, off the record. I can tell you that I have interviewed uh, Captain Stephen Sund off the record. Stephen Sun tells me that he had lunch several times with Stinger in the final day months of his life. And he had been sick. He was dying of cancer and he was in fact sick already on the date of January 6th. Okay. And, and when he, and he was, he was, it was a long, uh, dreadful, painful, uh, process for him. He was not murdered, uh, on some street, uh, crossing the street, going to some here, you know, uh, congressional hearing absolutely did not happen. Right. But, but that was the rumor that landed the day he died. Well, and see, here's the problem with all the stuff that has happened. Even though he died of cancer, he wasn't taken out, et cetera, et cetera. It's not hard. Not, not knowing that yeah. to put two and two together and go, well, I guess maybe you shouldn't have said anything. And it, I mean, it's nice to know that he was not taken out. I, I, I get it. But with all the, the real stuff that's out there, and I can't think of any names right off the bat, <laughs> but um, you can't blame people for being willing to entertain possibilities. And um, no, people do jump on those very quickly. And, and un- unfortunately, in this particular case, I've, I've spent months correcting that rumor. I wrote a long article about his Good. death when it happened. Good. And, and, uh, and as I said, I've had the opportunity to interview people that were close to him and validate that, in fact, it was not a, uh, he wasn't Clintonized <laughs> or yeah. Arkansas-ed. Uh but, but uh, that, was, that was certainly um, the prevailing rumor at the time, and it's just not true. But it's very fortunate that he left us that final hint, that clue, that Easter egg in his final um, uh, statement to Congress. Is there any evidence that House Judiciary, House Oversight, the uh, subcommittee on the Weaponization of the government. Anybody is interested in investigating that claim. I can tell you that there is interest. I have met with um, Congressman myself on all of the above committees, and I have worked directly with and am working directly with uh, investigators for House Weaponization. And that the result of the information and the materials, the evidence that I have brought them in their words, and I quote, 
you have sufficiently blown our minds. So, yes, we are going forward. Good. I I hope so. I hope they're not just patronizing you. No. Okay. Well, no, that's good. Uh, Steve Baker, the blog is the pragmatic constitutionalist.locals.com. Or they can type in the shorter version, just tpc4usa.com. It'll take them to the same place. That'd be probably a lot easier. <laughs> a lot easier. Right. tpc4usa.com. tpc4usa.com. And if I can figure out how, I'll try to put a, a link in the description on YouTube. Uh, Steve Baker, uh, thank you for being willing to put a whole lot on the line to try to get to the truth. Uh, we are uh, commanded not to partake in the evil deeds that men do, but instead to expose them. It's, it's written in a book called the Bible, um, which we all could do to read more often. Steve Baker, uh, God bless you. And we wish you Godspeed. Thank you for coming on the Doc Washburn show. I almost forgot. Are there any parting thoughts you'd like to leave with, uh, with my viewers. I think, I think you set up the parting thought very well. I, I'm in an interesting place right now because now that I feel like that they have reopened the DOJ persecution, persecution against me, that um, those who do believe in prayers, I'll covet those. Amen. Amen. Steve Baker, TPC4USA.com. God bless you. And thank you for coming on the Doc Washburn Show. Thank you, Doc. And it's time for our tweet of the day brought to you by Red River Auto, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online at redriverauto.com and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Tweet of the day. Today's tweet of the day is a two-parter. Actually, I guess it's a three-parter. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was being um, interrogated on NBC News about the abortion issue. Uh, And he acquitted himself well. One of the things that uh, conservatives have to learn is to reject the narrative of the liberal mainstream media. He did a good job on that, pushing back because, as we all know, abortion is wrong because, as we all know, It is written, you shall not do murder. So anyway, I say we all know that. Some people don't know that. Uh, There's a guy on Twitter. uh, Apparently, his name is Chris Loren. He goes by um, Republican Martial Arts. And his response to Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, owning the NBC News reporter was to say, Jesus Christ, is he ever going to talk about an actual issue? Now, as a Christian, there are two ways to deal with this. You can say, it is written, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's something I've done from time to time. Uh, But in this case, I said, Jesus Christ will be back later. Whole different story. I've done that more often. I'll never forget years ago. Years ago, I had just bought a kosher hot dog and some potato chips and a soda at the lunch counter at Sam's Club in Panama City, Florida. And I was going to leave the Sam's Club and go eat the 
kosher hot dog and chips and drink the soda somewhere else. And as I was walking through the little lunch area there, uh, there was some old redneck on his cell phone. See if I can recreate this. Some old redneck on his cell phone. And as I was walking by him, just within a couple of feet of him, I see him on his cell phone saying, well, Jesus Christ, man. And I just looked at him and said, he'll be back later. That's our tweet of the day brought to you by Mitch Ward and Red River Auto. We appreciate you guys. Thank you very much. Tweet of the day. You've been watching episode 401 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Be sure to hit the subscribe button on our YouTube channel to help our videos be seen by more people. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X, Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show, and that's the way it was, Monday, August 7th, 2023.